Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. We're closing in on our 100th episode, so please subscribe and pass along to your friends and drop a note with any comments or ideas. Okay, on with the program. Life insurance is one of the core tools in wealth management. It replaces income for families, funds the payment of estate taxes, and, given its tax advantages, can serve as an investment vehicle. However, the culture of life insurance and its regulatory framework live apart from the world of stocks and bonds. To that end, there's a new framework in New York that's changing the way life insurance is presented to clients. It's called Rule 187. This rule and the law that surrounds it is in contrast to the way in which life insurance has been traditionally presented. It imposes a new best interest standard and recognizes the importance of an accurate demonstration of the costs of insurance to clients. And for those wealth advisors and fiduciaries out there, Rule 187's reach goes far beyond the borders of New York. Enter Steven Seiger. Steven serves as a managing director of wealth management at KB Financial. He's a recognized expert in applying prudent investor guidelines to life insurance product selection. He works with large clients and advises individual and corporate trustees on their responsibilities around life insurance. Steve will help us understand the practical application of Rule 187 and the potential future impacts on the business of life insurance nationwide. After this podcast, you should have a new appreciation for the way life insurance should be bought and sold. Welcome aboard, Steve. Thanks for having me here today, Fraser. So before we dive into the vagaries of life insurance, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So I'm the son of a shrink, and that makes me an analyst when it comes to people, and it makes me an analyst when it comes to my work. And I was never really comfortable with presenting from the sales manual, so I found a way to present insurance from the compliance manual. And it's made a huge difference in terms of better outcomes for clients and the attorneys and accountants and RIAs that they work with. And I'm looking forward to discussing that with you today, Fraser. Yeah. So how did that happen? So when you were working with some of your old firms, did you see anything that didn't ring true or that you thought made for better advice for your clients? Sure. That's a great question. And approximately 15 years ago, I was working with a a household name, wealthy individual and his sort of prominent accounting firm. And the insurance company that gave the best offer for this individual told us to run the illustrations at different rates of return in order to see how volatile the policy was. And the next year when they came out with their new dividend rate, the dividend was the same, but the policy performed differently. And the insurance company would not agree to answer my question about why. And that led to a search around the country of every expert I could speak to. And eventually I was introduced to an individual named Barry Flagg, who now runs a company called Verilytic. And Verilytic is really the morning star of the life insurance business. And I eventually sent all of the redacted information to Verilytic. And a few days later, what looked like morning star reports arrived in my email box. And Mr. Flagg called me up and explained how they work. And he explained that while the 
dividend might be the same, but the costs changed. And that's what made the policy perform worse, even though the, the return was the same. And at that point, I've said, oh, wow, this would really be helpful to the accountants and attorneys and RAs and, and wealthy families that I work with. Empirical evidence instead of sales propaganda. Well, we're going to talk about this in a minute. The law has kind of caught up to what you sort of perceived as maybe a gap in information that the clients were getting. And we'll get to that shortly. Just as a quick review for listeners, and a lot of whom are part of that audience that deals with the high net worth or the ultra high net worth space. When you go through the function of life insurance for a client, what do you focus on? For most people, the thought is it replaces income, maybe used to fund income tax, maybe at a or some sort of business transition, and maybe thirdly as a sort of tax vehicle for an insurance program, an investment program. Anything else we're missing there? How else do you think about it? I think you hit the nail on the head. It's to replace someone's income to an efficient way to fund estate taxes, a buy-sell arrangement between business owners. Some people use it for asset protection purposes, and other people use it to accumulate assets without current taxation. So let's get back to sort of this new framework for analyzing insurance and what it costs and how it performs. Let's go back even at a higher level. How do you think people think the word fiduciary, and I I say that with little f, not big F, works with life insurance? In your experience, how is insurance sold or what should the client be thinking about in terms of that relationship with the insurance expert slash salesperson? That's a great question. You know, I think when people go to their accountant or an attorney or an RIA, they really go there for that fiduciary umbrella of protection. And as soon as there's a referral to an insurance person, that fiduciary relationship between the client and the insurance person disappears, right? There's really no requirement whatsoever you know, to work in the client's best interest. And in fact, you know, we'll talk about that New York regulation in a few minutes, but in New York, after the best interest regulation was passed, agents sued the Department of Financial Services to overturn the regulation, claiming that they don't represent the client, they represent the insurance company. And you know that when whatever you're doing in your life, whether it's buying a car, going to the doctor, dealing with your attorney. You want someone who's looking out for you, not not out for themselves. Well, and that that's a seismic statement. Let's peel back just a second. How is insurance and life insurance community regulated currently? As I understand it, it's state by state, maybe with some guidance from the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. When a broker is interacting with a client, where does that framework begin and end? Sure. So the, really the goals were implemented in 1995, and the goals were to ensure that illustrations do not mislead purchasers of insurance and to make illustrations more understandable, but there was no requirement to disclose cost, performance, or risk. And if you look at the investment business, those three, we'll call them issues, those are the bedrocks of of investment analysis but they're really not used in life insurance analysis. 
So what makes New York different now? There's been a couple of pretty important moves by the state insurance department and in the legal world. Maybe take us through that and why New York is different from the other 49 states. Sure. So New York is known as a bellwether state in many areas. And New York State implemented this Regulation 187, which is the country's first client's best interest regulation. It uses fiduciary language, care, skill, prudence, and diligence of a prudent person looking at cost, performance, and risk. Again, it's not as if New York invented this. These ideas are already written into FINRA Rule 2210, which says to disclose costs, the CFP fiduciary standard, which talks about costs. It's the Uniform Prudent Investor Act, the duty to investigate costs. So New York is built on that foundation. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I guess the next question is that you've got, for people who don't traffic in insurance very much, in a proposal, oftentimes not all of that information is necessarily conveyed. There will be a projection, there will be a list of what premium payments fund and don't fund, but what costs they go to address aren't necessarily out there. And so this is really a step up in transparency in a space that I guess is I wouldn't say notorious for not being transparent, but certainly not known for being quickly forthcoming with how things are put in front of the client. Right. And you really hit the nail on the head. So the regulators have said that life insurance illustrations should not be used for comparative purposes. Yet that's what goes on in the marketplace. The prospect receives a spreadsheet comparing a few policies side by side. And regulators have said that's quote, misleading and fundamentally inappropriate. And let's spend a minute talking about why is that misleading and fundamentally inappropriate? So let's pretend that you and I were not on a podcast, but we were looking at a life insurance illustration. And in the top right of the illustration, it says 5% rate of return. Now, most people probably think, okay, if they're going to credit me with a 5% rate of return, they're probably earning 6%. 1% is going to all of the costs, the policy expense, the premium loads, the cost of insurance charges, and, and I net 5%. But in reality, in a life insurance illustration, the cost and performance is commingled together. You don't know whether the insurance company thinks they can earn 10% on their money, charge you 5%, and leave you with 5%. And that would be an aggressive product because it's based on a 10% rate of return. Or is it a conservative product where the insurance company is earning 10, subtracting 1% over time and leaving you with five? And that's why illustrations are misleading because you can't actually figure out what is being credited and what is being deducted. So to ferret that out a little bit. The data is available. If you are interested in what the underlying costs are, and if you're an advisor who's advising a wealthy person, you should be interested in my opinion because you're only getting half the story, it sounds like. How does that work? I mean, that data is available. How does one access that? And then as importantly, I think, how do you interpret it correctly so that you understand that you're comparing apples to apples? Sure. Great question. So within every universal life, indexed life and variable life illustration system, 
there's an additional report that's rarely provided. And that additional report breaks out for every year, what is the policy expense? What is the premium load? What's the admin charge? What's the cost of insurance charge? And how much the insurance company is crediting? So you see exactly, are they crediting 5% or are they crediting 20 and taking back 15 with high expenses? So you can do that work in, in Microsoft Excel. But what I found in my practices, I send these reports to a company called Verilytic, and Verilytic has patents on life insurance benchmarks. So just as you might compare your mutual fund or ETFs performance with the S&P 500 index or benchmark or the Dow Jones Industrial Index or benchmark, Verilytics research compares all of these costs the policy expense, the premium load, the cost of insurance charge, the admin expenses with a benchmark at every age and every health class. So you can see where you fall along a continuum. Are you paying 1% more than best in the marketplace? Or are you paying 40% more than whatever is best in the marketplace? And the implication is that you can either get more for the premium dollar you're paying, or you can reduce the amount you're paying in premium for the same amount of death benefit if you go through that analysis. Exactly. It's really, it's so much easier to present life insurance this way. And I'll think of a, a case right now. So we were introduced to an individual and they were paying, you know, six figure premium. And what we did with the Verilytic research is we said to the individual, you're being charged 24 cents per dollar of death benefit on a present value basis. And then what we did was we searched the marketplace and provided that information to Verilytic. And they were able to come up with a policy that costs 12 cents per dollar of death benefit on a present value basis. And we didn't discuss policy type. We didn't push whole life or variable life or universal life. We simply said there is a lower cost product from a higher rate from a highly rated company, what would you like to do with the savings? And the answer was exactly what you said. Do you want to pay less premium? Do you want to have more cash value, present value adjusted? Or do you want more death benefit, present value adjusted? How do you want us to apply the savings? And then from there, we use a risk tolerance questionnaire to figure out what is the appropriate product for that individual. And this individual is able to more than double their death benefit on a guaranteed basis using this model of independent research. And so what's different about what you're describing is that you're not only going through the analysis of the performance of the policy, sort of you put in premiums, this is the cash value that it generates, and this is what the death benefit generates. But that second component, that cost analysis, is where you really add that third dimension where you can, in a sense, go into the marketplace and really, in a sense, drive a harder bargain for the client. Exactly. And when people... Look at the, you know, if, if I said to you, Fraser, why do people invest in Vanguard index funds? The answer is probably you're going to guess the costs are low and cost helps achieve better performance, apples to apples. And if I asked you, hey, Fraser, what is your mortgage cost? You'd probably say, you know, 2.14%, whatever the rate you're being charged. And if I asked you about your credit card, what that costs, you'd say 19%. And if you ask anyone 
either A, what are your life insurance costs, or you asked any advisor, attorney, accountant, RA, what are your clients incurring in life insurance costs? No one is able to answer that question except the clients of ours or, you know, who use this type of research or, you know, figure this out on in an Excel spreadsheet. And there have been some Morningstar white papers and Morningstar has said, if there's anything that you can take to the bank in every time period and data point tested, low cost funds beat high cost funds. And so the natural question is, do you think costs and expenses are equally important in life insurance? And just to give you an example, because we, we haven't covered that yet to see the, the size of this, the costs inside of life insurance are a multiple of the cost inside of people's investments. If people regularly negotiate for five basis points lower on their investments, meanwhile, 100 basis points of waste is flying out the door with their life insurance. So let's give a quick example. Let's pretend we have a the average 50-year-old in average health buying the average $10 million life insurance policy in the United States. The average costs are approximately $6 million over the life of the contract. So the person still has their $10 million death benefit. They still have their $4 million of cash at age 90, but $6 million has been subtracted from the policy and policy expenses, premium loads, cost of insurance charges over time. And though that $6 million in cost varies by 40% off the mean, which means there's an insurance company that charges 2.4 million more, and there's an insurance company that charges $2.4 million less, a total swing of $4.8 million. And without people knowing what they're paying, they might be overpaying by $4.8 million and obviously finding a new $4.8 million that you didn't know you had is a great day and a great experience. So the implications of what we're describing here are big on lots of different levels. Let's start a second for people who are advising clients and close to home here, trustees of trusts, to fulfill a fiduciary duty to make sure that the insurance policy within a trust is performing correctly, but also sort of passes muster from a cost-benefit analysis seems like it would be obvious to most people, but it sounds like this cost-benefit analysis is something that most ILIT trustees in particular aren't really focusing on. You're absolutely correct. The Uniform Prudent Investor Act, which is the guidance that trustees use, says that the cost must be appropriate and reasonable depending upon the purpose of the trust, the skill of the trustee, et cetera. And for life insurance, those costs are the cost of insurance charge, the policy expense, the premium load. And interestingly enough, there are some companies that do not disclose what their costs are. So nowhere on the illustration is the information provided for a trustee to look at costs and compare with the marketplace. And when you mentioned before about this being state by state, it really is a patchwork of rules and many things do fall through the cracks. So whole life policy, not that there's anything wrong with whole life, but the trustee's job is to investigate those costs, yet the costs aren't provided in the policy. 
that's enough to keep me up at night. <laughs> so we've sort of hopefully scared the pants out of most islet trustees into sort of looking at looking at the underlying assets a little bit more deeply. The other advisors within a relationship, and I'm thinking about those sort of CFP type advisors or people at the RIA level who are tasked with multiple different functions around a larger sort of wealth plan for clients. I'm pretty sure that most of them are not going through this analysis at the insurance level. And in fact, if they are involved with the insurance acquisition or the analysis of it, they are delegating it off to someone independent. What do they have to worry about? I mean, I've got to think that if as part of a financial plan that someone puts in place and they diagnose a need for life insurance, that how that is implemented, if that isn't quite up to the capital F fiduciary standards that we described for trustees, that there's some level of liability if that New York framework starts to creep into their system in one way or another. Does that make sense to you or am I panicking? No, I think you are correct. And I think we'll see in the future, you know, interest rates have fallen on life insurance from 18% to 4% for certain products. And you can imagine that as we've seen that decline in interest crediting rates, policies are performing worse. But most insurance agents, after they sell a policy, they run away to sell the next policy. And no one's really communicating what's going on with that policy over time. And the fiduciaries, the attorney, the accountant, the RA, they'll find that when this is done correctly, it makes their job easier. It leads to more referrals. And it protects them on a fiduciary basis because the regs state that you should not be using side-by-side comparisons, that you should be looking at cost, you should be looking at performance, you should be looking at risk. And if the decision support materials that the attorney or accountant or RIA are helping their clients with are not compliant, anyone can be named in, a, in some sort of you know, legal action. So one of the things that I think a lot of certainly RIAs, but maybe other fiduciaries and sort of the advice world that they're not thinking about is the impact of the New York rule on their practice, even if they aren't in New York. I think it would be very easy for people to say, well, this applies to New York agents maybe selling into New York clients. But in fact, it could be a lot broader than that. Help us flesh that out. Sure. So the regulation 187 applies when the client is a resident of New York, even if the advisor is in another state. It applies to former residents of New York if the islet is domiciled in New York. It applies if the islet trustees are in New York, even if the islet is domiciled elsewhere. And it applies to financial advisors in New York or with clients in New York. But in reality, I think ethically, it applies in 50 states. Because let's pretend that we have a client in in Texas and an attorney or an accountant or RIA is working with that client, if they introduce the client to an insurance broker who's not working in the client's best interest, isn't it easier to work with an insurance advisor who is following the steps and the New York rules? It leads to a better outcome in every situation. So I think ethically, it applies everywhere. It's a better framework. It's imagine, use an analogy, imagine that in New York, 
physicians worked under the first do no harm from the Hippocratic Oath, and in every other state they didn't, well, people would flock to New York for their care. It's the same thing here. Attorney, accountant, and RA advisors should search for insurance agents who use a model that analyzes cost, performance, and risk. I would also argue for for those advisors who, let's say, dabble in the insurance world, it would probably make a lot of sense to skate in the direction of where the puck is going regulatorily. And if you think New York is is the first of many states that are going to start thinking about this, I can't imagine a state like California or Illinois or Florida isn't thinking about this as well. You might be future-proofing your practice by doing the right thing earlier. Right. And it's also because more data and empirical evidence leads to better outcomes, it leads to more client referrals because you know, attorneys and accountants and RAs say to me, you know, we, we've always been concerned that the client really wasn't getting the best information and we were never really satisfied that the clients were getting the performance that was promised. And now they know that they have the correct information to make a better decision all the time when they follow these regs. So the dollar amounts that we're dealing with, we deal with high net worth and ultra high net worth cases. And so a few hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars to analyze these things is appropriate within the context of the insurance that's being placed here. At what levels, aside from the ethical concerns, you know, for those people who are listening to the podcast who may not be millionaires yet, but are trying to get to that point, when you're dealing with an insurance advisor, how do you ask for this information? And is it at a point yet where this level of analysis is appropriate even for smaller cases? Yeah, I think that it is appropriate on every case because it's all about experiencing a new paradigm. And if someone has the experience, the new paradigm on this, you know, the fiduciary era for life insurance, on a $100,000 policy, but they see a better outcome, that makes them more comfortable to start working with more clients. And some attorneys and accountants and RAs start with their largest clients because that's who they're most concerned with. But I really don't think that any size should not be looked at because that really allows someone to dip their toe in the pool and begin to have a better experience. And in our model, just like when an RIA purchases their research from Morningstar, they can use as much of it as they want, right? Each report doesn't cost X dollars more. So in our arrangements with the organizations that we buy independent research from, and there are four, we've purchased an unlimited supply of research. So when something comes in, we don't have to say, oh, well, that's going to cost us another $1,000. There's no additional cost. And that really makes it open for everyone to participate. This is fascinating. Dramatic foreshadowing for the audience. Stephen and I are working on something that shows this in a video representation, which will be coming out shortly. But in the meantime, Steve, how do we stay in touch with you around this? And how can the listeners talk to you if they have an issue? Sure. So the, I think the easiest, you know, people are so easy to Google and find, but you know, my telephone number is 917-750-6201, or they can email Fraser, or they can find me on LinkedIn, or they can send me an email to you know, S 
Z-E-I-G-E-R at kbfcllc.com. And just so you know, this is all designed so that this research can be purchased for the individual without knowing who the individual is. So the individual's name does not need to be on all of the illustrations. It can be all redacted. And that makes it easy for an attorney or an accountant or an RA to begin the process, right? They can take the enforced ledgers that we need, redact all the information, send it to us. They get all the data back with no name and they can have in the comfort of their own office without us even knowing who the client is, we can begin to see if we can help. Excellent. I'm going to have all of that information in the show notes for listeners. And in the meantime, Stephen, thanks for being on. This is, I think, not only important information, but I think it's something that we have not seen anywhere near the full impact of it yet in the wealth management space. So thank you for helping to surface it for the audience. No problem. I enjoyed being on your show and thanks for the great questions, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.